All right, grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Uh, This morning's message is an exercise in repetition, as Jesus is going to teach us some things this morning that he's taught us before, already a number of times in Matthew's gospel. Uh, He's going to tell us this again, because we often forget things easily and and pretty quickly. Is that true of anybody else in the room? (laughs) Forget things pretty easily and pretty quickly. Or sometimes it's not so much that we forgot, it's just that we don't do anything about the things that we know. And so Jesus says, I'm going to have to say that again. And so for whichever reason it is, Jesus is going to teach us some of the same things that he's already taught just a few more times. The Apostle Paul, some of you may already be thinking this, had a similar pattern of repetition. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. He says it's a safeguard for the soul to have truths, even that we've heard before, even that we have already encountered, even that we've heard sermon after sermon after sermon. He says it's a safeguard for your soul to hear this again. And so may we never tired of hearing the truths of the kingdom yet again. And may hearing it serve as a safeguard for our souls. Now today's repeated theme in the Gospel of Matthew is the theme of humility, lowliness, service. Putting others before ourselves. Putting ourselves last in order to actually be on the path to first place, as we talked about even last week. Jesus hits these themes in the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. You may be remembering some of that. He hits them again, quite decidedly, in Matthew chapter 18, and he's returned to the same point of emphasis now in chapter 20. Jesus is adamant that we understand and embrace the way of the kingdom, which is the way of lowliness and self-denial for the sake of others, which stands, of course, in stark contrast to our natural impulse of self-preservation and protection for the sake of ourselves. Is cutting against our most natural impulses. In our sin, we often want to store up what Jesus calls us to pour out, and we want to be emptied of those things which Christ says ought to fill our lives. And so today we re-enter Jesus' school of divinity, wherein he'll instruct us again about kingdom life and kingdom greatness. So, Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So in verse 17, Jesus says that he's going up to Jerusalem. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And this statement, going up to Jerusalem, has both physical and metaphorical value. You see, Jerusalem was physically, geographically up. It's a city on a hill, quite literally, with an elevation of some 2,500 feet. So you actually did have to climb up to Jerusalem. But at the same time, Jerusalem was not only a place of physical ascent, but also a place of spiritual ascent. It's where the presence of the high king Yahweh rested in the temple. And it was the capital city of King David's kingdom, where Solomon's temple had been. God's people ascended to Jerusalem in order to keep feasts and festivals and offer sacrifices. 
they ascended into the presence of the king when they went up to Jerusalem. That's why there's an entire collection of psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. You may be familiar with these if you've studied the psalms. These were songs that were sung by God's people as they journeyed up to Jerusalem into the presence of the high king Yahweh and even into the presence of their national king. Jesus then is making his ascent up to Jerusalem in these chapters of Matthew. But for Jesus, this isn't so much an ascent into the presence of the king. Rather, Matthew wants us to read this as an ascent to his own kingship. That's what's happening as Jesus is making this ascent. It's not the ascent into the presence of the king. Rather, it's his ascent into kingship. He's on his way to kingship. And while on his way, our Lord will explain the path which takes him there, which is not a path that anyone was expecting was going to lead to much greatness. As he explains what that path is. But in fact, he's going to say, the path that you don't think looks great is actually the path that leads directly to greatness and is the path that is demanded for kingship, rulership in the kingdom of heaven. It's a path that looks lowly and small, but it's actually the path to greatness, to God-honoring rule. Lowliness, service, self-denial is the path to greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And as we've already read, Jesus teaches them and is going to teach them again that the only way to ascend is actually to descend in service to others. Let's look at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever must be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." It's not a modern affectation or social accretion that men often respond more favorably to the, to the requests of women than to the requests of other men. You notice who comes to make the request that these two fellas be at the right and left hand of Jesus. They're present, but who does the talking? Mama. And that was a calculated move, wasn't it? Because, again, it's not a modern affectation to see male deference toward, call it the feminine mystique, if you've read Betty Friedan. Let's sort over, everyone. That's fine. <laughs> you see, men are more deferential and gentle 
in our interactions with women than we are with men. Because we know instinctively that women are the weaker vessel, and whether we do it or not, we also know that we ought to honor women as the weaker vessel, because their weakness is assigned by God, as 1 Peter chapter 2 teaches later explicitly. You see, men want to serve women, and we feel manly when we do it. And so, when a woman has a need, plight, or even a simple request, men are inclined to acquiesce. Would you guys agree with this as a general dynamic between men and women? Whereas when another man has a need or a plight, we're often disinclined toward assistance because we view men as those who should care for themselves and for others, while we view women as those who should be cared for by another. And so this is an ancient, even eternal dynamic between men and women, not a novel socially engineered one, you see. And so consequently, we see throughout the biblical narratives that on occasion, women are sent to men to make requests on behalf of other men because they're thinking they may have a better outcome if they send a woman to do the talking in this situation or in that situation. Some examples of that would be 1 Samuel 14, uh, excuse me, 2 Samuel 14, 2 Samuel 20, and 1 Kings chapter 1, and then of course the text that is in front of us. So while it's James and John's mother, Salome, who makes the request, it's actually clear as we read the other synoptic gospels that it's the ambition of her boys that's actually behind the request. And interestingly, best we can tell, Salome, the the mother here who's speaking, is the half-sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, making Salome Jesus' aunt, which of course James and John likely believed would add some force to the request. Right? Jesus, that's your mom's sister. I mean, like, it, we don't even care about it that much, honestly, but I mean, if she, if she wants it, <laughs> you know, don't you think? <laughs> so what we really see here is the maneuvering of James and John to gain honor, favor, acclaim, and status in Jesus' kingdom, and they are leveraging family relationships and networks in order to try to put some measure of pressure on the Lord Jesus to acquiesce to their request. So let's look again at verse 22 and see how Jesus responds to the pressure that's been applied. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, a major note to make here is the fact that Jesus knows how to be under authority. Jesus does well being under authority. So he's actually even here demonstrating kingdom greatness by reveling in the fact that he is under authority. 
You know where I'm getting the fact that he's under authority. It's because the way that he answers their question, he says, I don't get to decide who's at my right and my left. My father's going to make that decision. Did you hear that? Do you hear that in the text? What's he emphasizing there? He's emphasizing the fact that he is one who is under authority. So much so that he doesn't even get to make the decision as to who he sits next to. That's under authority, isn't it? That's some kind of submission. Doesn't even get to choose the seating chart at his own table. Oh, I'm going to let my father do that. My father's the one who has that authority. Jesus is comfortable with and confident in submission to his father. But we're often made insecure and uncomfortable by any kind of submission at all, aren't we? Because we want to be submitted to. We don't want to be doing the submitting. But it's only those who submit well who lead well. Do you know that? It's only those who submit well who will ever lead well. If you're only comfortable giving orders but have disdain for taking them, you're not great. You're petty and small. If you only revel in being the boss and you see no joy in being under a good boss, then you're a sad, shriveled soul who should never find himself in possession of power because it will be horrible for those who are under you. What's the quote, Luke? Something like, a little man with a little power is a big problem. Something like that. A little man with a little power is a big problem. And what's meant by little there, obviously, is little in character and personhood. Someone who lacks internal steadiness and must therefore use other people to steady his sense of himself, such that every shot at influence or leadership becomes about his own validation rather than about the good of those who are under his influence. His great mission in life is tiny and insignificant because his great mission in life is himself. He's a small person. Jesus, on the other hand, has all power and all authority, but he has no power trip. You see? And every opportunity that he gets, he delights in the authority that he is under, not in the authority that he has. He's delighting here in this text in the authority that he's under, namely his father's. It is the sickened soul that cannot delight in being under authority, but always seeks to seize it, to grasp equality, if you will. Because that soul's biggest mission in life is its own good and satisfaction, again, which is tiny and small, not great. The self-seeking soul shrivels due to malnourishment because, you know, your soul was crafted in the image of God's own soul. And that means that it's starved by selfishness and it's fed by self-giving. You want your soul to grow and be well-nourished. Well, that doesn't happen by you seeking to satisfy yourself because that's the opposite of giving your soul what it wants. It wants to be as God is. So it's not fed in the final instance by selfishness. It's fed by self-giving. That's why the selfish person ends up being small and petty because its soul isn't well fed. So Jesus demonstrates his greatness and worthiness of kingship even here as he happily places himself beneath his father. And so we have to ask the question, what about us? Is our soul sick with self-interest and obsessed with our personal status? Does it make us feel small to submit 
We can think about this in a myriad of instances or applications, couldn't we? Does it make you feel small to submit to your husband because either secretly or openly you want his authority? Like, it feels like, feels icky and wrong and dirty. Shouldn't I be the one who's calling shots or nobody should tell me what to do or however it is that makes you feel? Does it make us feel small to submit to our boss because we want to rule? but we don't want to be ruled. To make you feel small to submit to your parents because you want to exercise authority over your own life. To make you feel small to submit to the elders in the local church because it feels like an affront to your own spiritual maturity. You see, if we chafe in environments where submission is required, it's because our soul is sickly, shriveled, and small. Because apparently, its greatest purpose is small. That being our own exaltation. It's too small a name, too small a goal. This is the kind of soul that can take no pleasure in the exaltation of others unless that exaltation somehow reflects positively on us. But when it does not feel exalted, if our soul doesn't feel exalted, then there's no experience of joy. So you know your soul is sick. So you know that you're small and not great. The person with a soul that's in this state needs to confess, repent, and then feed his soul with glad acts of service and submission that will help his soul to grow and be enlarged. Failure to right your soul in this way will make you like the Gentiles who lord it over all of those who are under them. They work to make others feel or look small in order to feel large themselves. You guys obviously are familiar with this dynamic, right? We've seen it in the normal hierarchical situations that we think about, like government and our workplace. And everybody knows, like even when I said the quote about a little man with a little power, everybody had the image of the guy they, they know who's just like that come into their head, right? whether it's the inspector on the job site or that guy who just got promoted to middle management and now anybody who, like the two guys that are under him, are like, oh no, <laughs> what's Monday gonna be like? <laughs> yeah, everybody knows what it looks like in those environments. We've seen it and we've experienced it in those hierarchical situations, but make no mistake, a husband may do this to his wife, a mother may do this to her children, an elder may do this to his church. It's going to happen in all of those situations and scenarios. Our positions of authority have been given to us so that we might wield whatever power and influence we have on behalf of and for the good of those who are under our care. That's why we've been given the positions that we've been given. We've not been given our positions of authority in order to meet our own psychological and egotistical needs. That's not why God puts you in the position that he puts you in. You've not been made a magistrate or an elder or a boss or a husband or a mother in order to make you feel big and important. That's not why. God made you that so that you could do big and important work, that being the work of serving those who are under your authority. That's why he gave you the position. That's greatness because that's Christ-likeness. So in the course of our lives, each of us will be under authority and each of us will have some measure of authority. And if we're truly growing in grace, then we'll be at ease in either position, as Christ himself was and is at ease in both positions. 
But hear this well. I, I do have to give this caveat or qualification that we cannot twist these passages, this recurrent emphasis on humility, lowliness, putting ourselves last and others first. We, we cannot twist this doctrine of authority or kingship into some doctrine that sort of says that giving orders or speaking authoritatively is beyond the pale. But that's often the way that these texts end up getting used. They often end up getting used as a weapon against anybody actually ever exercising authority at all. Because anytime somebody exercises authority in the modern age, we have a tendency to say, well, that can only ever come from a place of arrogant self-righteousness and nobody ought to ever tell me what to do. But I want to say, that's your problem with authority. That's not a problem with authority itself. And so don't, don't twist these things in the way that our culture has. Our culture wants to say that these texts mean that the real king doesn't actually give any orders. Real godly rulership only listens and defers. Right? It's the idea of servant leadership. Right? Don't ever actually tell anybody authoritatively to do something. I mean, haven't you read Matthew chapter 20? Again, that's what our culture does with these texts. We've made authority toothless and weak, and we assume that a leader is only in line with biblical principles to the degree that he's making those under his leadership happy and they agree with his decisions. That's what we've done with these texts. But I've said no such thing because the texts say no such thing. This text does not teach that authoritative commands must not be given to subordinates. Rather, it's teaching that those authoritative commands must be given for the good of those subordinates. That's what the text is teaching. But those important matters to the side, there's a stunning aspect of this account that we need to untangle. In response to James and John's request, Jesus asks if they can drink the cup that he's going to drink. Remember the, the dialogue that he had with them. Say, Salome, their mom, says, I want my boys at the right and left. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And what do they say? They say, we are able. Which is an unsurprising response from two guys in the Bible who are known as the sons of thunder. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, I would expect them to be pretty self-assured. Of course we can, Jesus. We're the sons of thunder. We'll drink whatever you put in front of us. We got it. That part's unsurprising. Their response didn't catch me off guard at all. But read carefully and notice Jesus' response to their response. That's the thing that's alarming. What does Jesus say in response to their very confident assertion that they can, in fact, drink the cup that he's going to drink? What does he say? You will. You will drink my cup. Now, we may even have sort of a visceral reaction against that because we're thinking, well, we need to preserve Christ's uniqueness. We need to preserve Christ's divinity. We need to, to preserve the fact that he's the only one who can drink the cup because we have in our head what that cup is, don't we? We're like, no. Jesus is the only one who can drink that cup. Jesus is the only one in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is the only one who's hanging on that cross. Jesus is the only one who drinks down the cup of God's wrath because that's what we're thinking about when we think about this cup, isn't it? So we're thinking when we read that and we hear them say, we are able, we're thinking, you idiots. No, you can't drink that cup. 
And then Jesus says, shut up, you idiots. They're going to drink that cup. And we're like, well, now I've got a theological conundrum because I, I, I know not what to do with this. <laughs> what does that mean? You see, when we think of this cup, obviously we're thinking about the cup of God's wrath. And we're thinking of that cup for good reason. Because Jeremiah 25, 15, and 16 says this. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Or Revelation 14, 9 through 10. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. I could stack up passages that refer to a cup of wrath and anger, and you guys know those verses, which is why when we read about this cup, we're immediately thinking about a cup of wrath. But we may forget that there's more than one cup in the Bible. There's more than one cup in the Bible. There's also a cup of blessing, isn't there? Psalm 23, there's a famous one. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And what's the next verse? Just to make sure we don't think it's a cup of wrath. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. What's that cup overflowing with? Blessing, and goodness, and mercy. That's also a biblical cup. Psalm 116, 12 through 13. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? What should I give him? Answer, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. So there's also a cup of salvation. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not participation in the blood of Christ? This is one of Paul's sections where he's teaching about the Lord's Supper. What's he referred to the cup as? The cup of blessing. There's more than one cup. There's not just a wrath cup. There's a cup of blessing. Jesus can say this to James and John because there's more than one cup to drink. There's the cup of wrath and there's the cup overflowing with goodness and mercy, the cup of salvation and blessing. Because Jesus drinks down the cup of God's wrath for our sins, our cup overflows with blessing. Because of Jesus' condemnation, we lift up the cup of salvation, as we will do together near the close of this service. I think that's the primary sense in which Jesus can affirm that, yes, they will drink his cup. But the cup that he's referring to is the cup of blessing that he makes available after he's drunk the cup that we were initially thinking of when he first made the statement. They would drink with Jesus from the cup of blessing. But... As provocative as it may sound, I want to say that there is also a sense in which they and we will also share in the cup that we all assumed he was referencing the first time that we read the verse, that being the bitter cup. There's also a sense in which they and we will drink from that cup with Jesus as well. Not in the sense that we too become substitutionary atonements for people's sins, not in that sense at all 
But in the sense that we too are called to give up our lives, carry our crosses, and deny ourselves for the life of the world. That's a call that Jesus passes on to us as well. And if you're thinking about it, you know that every day that cup gets placed in front of you, doesn't it? That cup or that call to die for the life of others is a cup that gets put in front of you every day. The call to die so that those around you might live more abundantly. When you're about to boil over and wound your children with self-indulgent venting that's aimed not at their instruction and edification, but at the satisfaction of your wrath. Well, Jesus says, drink the cup. Drink the cup. Because either your flesh is going to die in that moment, or something in your children is going to die in that moment. Who's going to live? Who's going to die? Jesus says, drink the cup. Drink the cup. Which is to say, let that self-indulgent frustration that just wants to lash out, let that die so that it can be raised to new life as correction and training and righteousness. Die so that it can rise. When you want to be lazy instead of productive, when you want to use pornography instead of pursuing a wife, when you want to sleep with your girlfriend before you've made her your wife. When you want to choose unfaithful selfishness that elevates your carnal desires over life-giving obedience to God, there's the cup. In all of those situations, scenarios, there's the cup. Jesus is saying, drink down the bitter cup because there's some things in you that need to die. Drink it down for the life of the world. Because when you fail to drink that cup, and your sin and your flesh and your carnality thrives and continues to live, then all the good things in your life start to die as a result, don't they? Choose which death is going to happen. Jesus says, my disciples will drink my cup, meaning they will choose to die to fill the world with the life that comes from saying yes to the Father. That is its own kind of death, isn't it? And we know that if we've been in those moments where our, our flesh really wants what it wants, and it wants it badly and strongly and violently, doesn't it? It often does feel like a kind of death to say, no, no. I'm saying no to sin. I'm saying yes to righteousness. And the reason that I know that it feels like death is because we do it so infrequently. <laughs> We often want that to stay alive, don't we? Now, earlier I mentioned that the path to greatness, kingship, and God-honoring rule is lowliness, service, and self-denial. And Jesus obviously embodied and embodies those values. He demonstrates that greatness perfectly. He is that king, and he is that God-honoring ruler. He is all of those things. And so a question that occurred to me as I was studying this text if Jesus is all of those things perfectly and does all of those things, then why does he need to invite us to walk the same path? You, you get what I'm saying? If Jesus is, Jesus is already on that throne, he's already that ruler, he's already got all of these things down, he's already doing all of this perfectly. So why have us peer behind the curtain and see how God 
honoring rulership is done. Like, why, why tell us that we're going to drink the cup too? Why send us up the path to Jerusalem to die as well? Why are we sharing in these things with him? Why share with us the path to kingdom greatness? Why not just Jesus do it? Well, it's because he wants us to walk that path with him and likewise become great. This is, again, what the image of God does and who is ultimately the image of the invisible God except the Lord Jesus. What is God always doing except giving of himself? What was creation except an act of God's self-giving? I've got everything that I need in myself, and out of the overflow of who I am, I want to give life to something else. That's who he is. That's what he does. And Jesus too. It was too small a thing for Jesus to simply ascend to greatness. He says, you're coming with me. It was too small a thing for Jesus to ascend to rulership. He says, I'm bringing you too. It was too small a thing for Jesus' status to rise. He says, yours will rise too. This is who God is. This is what God does. You and I must learn to rule like Christ because we are rulers and reigners with him. And he's exercising his dominion over this world through his body. Well, who's that? Who's the body of Christ? Well, that's you and that's me. So he says, you must learn this. You must learn this because my rule is discharged through my body. Now, whether your eschatology sees that as an active reality or one that you're preparing for makes no difference as to the kind of life that you're called to live. The instructions are clear in either eschatological system. That is to say, you have a realm of dominion that the Lord has given to you. And he says, here's how I want you to steward that authority, that influence, that power, what have you. We can rule self-interestedly, or we can rule in a self-giving fashion that gives life to the world. And the Lord Jesus says, you know which one you're supposed to do. But in order to do it, you have to drink down the bitter cup that is death and let your flesh die so that life in the Spirit can be experienced, not only by you, but by all of those who are under your authority as well. Let's pray.